We want to take a second to thank you for supporting Womance by listening to our podcast. One great way that you can continue supporting us, including those listens, is hitting subscribe, telling a friend, leaving a review. That stuff all really matters. Sharing it on your personal social media is another great way to spread the word about Womance. And another option for supporting us, if we may be so bold, is to recommend going to our Patreon, where you can donate as little as a dollar a month to help us spread the word of woe. If you want to contribute more than a dollar a month which obviously no pressure whatever you've got we are so appreciative to have but we have awesome gifts for you if you want a hand addressed letter from morgan and isabeau maybe with some special whoa stickers other merch just uh, visit our patreon we are womance on patreon or is it patreon.com forward slash womance we would be very proud to call you one of our patrons We don't we don't have to do our big sigh because this is a woeness. First time in a long time. I'm really excited to talk about 2022, the year that was, and also talk about what we've got on deck for 2023. Isabel, would you be interested in learning some data along with our listeners about the books we read on Womance in 2022? Morgan, you know I love a data dump. All right. Okay. So we read 18 books this year, uh, which is down from every other year. Wonder why it's down. (laughs) I I will say this was a year of personal big moves for the two of us. So that kind of makes sense. Mm -hmm. But also we should count the fact that we finished uh, Jane air in 2022 so i guess technically we've read 19 books correct i think that's super fair and we started pride and prejudice by jane austen if you haven't heard of it a couple of other things is that i i think our list overall became a lot more a lot more deep cuts but also a lot more uh status quo in terms of the content like we had our monster series and stuff but overall, it was mostly heteros, even if one of the heteros was a gargoyle or three of the heteros was a gargoyle. Yes. Which was different for us. We also read a lot more technical romances, <laughs> I would say. Can you elaborate on what you mean by technical romance? It's not like a romance for engineers. <laughs> like Verity by Colleen Hoover, I think is technically... Um, I think A Court of Thorns and Roses and A Court of Mist and Fury is also romance, but that's not necessarily the forefronted genre for it, marketing-wise at least. And then we also read The Dead Romantics, which you argued wasn't a romance. I will argue that forcefully until the day I die or (laughs) am thrown into a coma and haunt you or someone else. Um, That's fair. God, what a boring... Uh, that cannot possibly be your haunt (laughs) that wouldn't be my haunt but like if I were like that would be one of the things that I would argue as a ghost yeah people would be like the dead romantics is a romance and I'm like no it's not but when I say we read a lot more diversity publishing wise the most popular form of publishing that we read or publisher that we read this year was self-published. I think that's the first time that's ever happened for us. Yeah, for sure. Only two Berkeleys, not to pat ourselves too much on the back. We had a a couple Harlequin category romances. We had an Avon. We had a zebra, a zebra. But um, yeah, that was pretty interesting. And the majority of the novels that we read were actually pretty recent releases, which is also weird Mm -hmm. for us. So what do you think, if you could guess, what was our most popular episode in 2022? One of the windflowers? No. Sarah Simone Priest had a big play because we mentioned it a bunch of times in other episodes. Our most popular episode of 2022 Mm -hmm. was 
do I make you thorny, baby? Nice. A Court of Thorn and, and Roses. And I think a lot of people will point out, well, that's a really popular book. But I actually think it was the brilliant title I came up with. Uh, it was an amazing title. It was also a super fun book to read. And I think for the people who listen, it was an odd choice for us. And it would have been uncommon for them. And I think we would have gotten those like moderate swing voters, uh, you know, to come over to our partisan progressive side just to listen to that. <laughs> Fall off the fence onto our side of the pasture. Mm-hmm. I want to ask you... We put together some superlatives to look back on our year. What was, what would you say is your hardest woe of the books we read in 2022? I'm so glad that you asked this question first because it dovetails so nicely. My hardest woe is A Court of Thorn and Roses. Like, whoa! Came out of left field for me. It wasn't on my radar at all in terms of this podcast or in terms of romance. I found it incredibly sexy. I found it incredibly fruitful. It felt so fun to read, but also so intense to read. I immediately one clicked the next one. As you said, our episode it was like a bag of potato chips it just like strummed every chord inside of my body which was great definitely recommend it to literally everyone i want everyone on planet earth to read this book what do you think makes it your so it was surprising to you what about the book what about the story makes it your hardest woe like taking it out of the context right and it's just it's just a pile of pages and you're just a gal reading them (laughs) i love it It, because it's two separate (laughs) mythical stories together right it's a beauty and the beast so like tamlin's beautiful he's in a mask he's like sexy and then there's like a lot of slow burn stuff that's really good and then after he's taken to the court under the mountain and is you know, held prisoner, uh, our main heroine has to go get him back, which I think is like a really underutilized story. Like it's a Cupid and Psyche. It is a Tamlin. And I don't think that's used enough in romance where the agency isn't just that she's making choices, which is sexy, but that she's making like difficult and physically challenging choices in the name of love. And then we also had like the possible like triangle with Lucian and then we had the possible triangle with Resend and like it was just very sexy and then murdery and terrifying so one of the things I love so much about that episode is all of the references that you pointed out and all of the external to romance and really external to pop culture like you pointed out a lot of folk shit that was happening folk and mythology and like deep cuts that i i'm sure were on moss's mind but i don't think our pointed i didn't see pointed out anywhere else and so that's one of the things i enjoyed it was also eye-opening for me what was your hardest woe of the year the windflower by laura london oh so good i mentioned that one later in my superlatives what was your hardest what was the hardest part of your hard woe for the windflower the windflower brings all of the pizzazz of romance written before 1995 and very little of the angst that comes along with enjoying it. So it was just the carnivalesque excitement, rich characters, and we got to have the conversation with Chell's eBooks, who is a critic, um, a writer who I admire so much, and it was just cool to get to hang out with someone who I feel like I already knew on TikTok. <laughs> Yeah, that was a really great conversation. They brought they they brought a lot of uh, joy and um, critical detail that was enjoyable to me as well. Yeah, we've got a you know not unlike the gargoyles or in fact the crew of the Windflower. You got to bring in some other people to spice things up every once in a while. Secondary characters need to function not only for the enjoyment of the text, but they also help their main character shine. Morgan. <laughs> Because we understand each other in relation. (laughs) We've got to triangulate some of our conflict through a third party every once in a while. Just to spice things up. What was your softest woe? Okay, so softest woe is the woe that I'm like the most like, uh, like I gave it a woe. I don't want to take the woe away. But I'm also like, I'm like, ah, a woe. 
Mm-hmm. And I think our recent reading, it's kind of a toss-up for me between One Winter's Night by Brenda Jackson, which I think, like, I was so atmospheric that I really wanted to give it a whoa. Like, I felt cozy reading it. I felt like I was, you know, talking to my mom in an Applebee's. Does have that vibe. Yeah. And it was like a unique enough kind of cozy that I wanted to give it a whoa. But the actual and the sex scenes were good. But the actual content of the story isn't anything that I particularly relate to. And in fact, causes me a lot of anxiety. (laughs) What was your softest whoa? So I'm glad that you prefaced your soft with like why it is it it clung to the woe and like how you're envisioning this um because mine is kind of a little off kilter my softest woe is Jane Eyre uh we finished it this year it's nothing slaps like the hits but because it isn't technically part of the canon of us reading woe or no it's a soft woe for me because it it is kind of a cheat in that way but also like she ends up with a man who kept his wife in a closet so you're you liked it because it was good but you didn't like it because mr rochester kept his wife in a closet is that what i heard yeah and that i'm forced to like rochester despite myself even though he does egregious and terrible thing forced to like is is an interesting way to contextualize it I think we are, in fact, socially conditioned to like Rochester, and then he is just a compelling character. Yes, he's so compellingly written, and his speeches are so beautiful, and he is monstrous. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think it's, you know, we are conditioned to like Rochester. Yeah. So that's my soft well. Ah, very interesting. So what would be your hardest no from the year 2022? Our most recent read, Gift of Joy. Christmas is the aggressor. The war on Christmas continues at Wovance. Why is is this your most full-throated no? It's my most full-throated no because, as you beautifully said in the episode, typically, even with a no, we can find something to latch on to or, like, sink our teeth into. And the two stories that we read from this compendium are just so squarely on the other side of the culture war from me in time and space and meaning that it it was it was just it was really difficult to find anything that I even liked about it other than reading it out loud which is experiential and not part of the text itself what about for you dragonbound by thea harrison nice because we were promised dragon sex and didn't get it? Uh-huh. 100%. And <laughs> also the Capri pants. Also the, like, billionaire element. Also, like, it's ideologically difficult. It also has rickety world building. It has the, like, rare problem of problematic world building where it gives too much pointless detail. hmm And... It was, uh, yeah, it wasn't sexy. It wasn't interesting. It felt like a chore to read at certain points. That's my, and that's, when I look back on it, the thing I remember most is reading her, like, training and just being so bored. And, like, hoping that the fact that she's a unicorn does something. It does nothing. <laughs> it does nothing. It, it, it didn't do anything that we thought it would do. Yeah. My softest no. I think I gave uh, The Duke Makes Me Feel a no. Mm -hmm. And I would say that's my softest no because it's fine. Uh, I remember not enjoying certain like obvious inaccuracies in the text. Yep, there was a thing about wine. Um, There was a thing about sauces. That's right, the wine sauce. Uh, Yeah, and there's also... um, the thing about Vietnam as a colony. Like, there were a couple of things that were just kind of off about it. I also found out that the Duke makes me feel, so we got it as, or you got it as part of the compendium, but it was originally self-published. 
And so whenever it came out in the short story collection, um, and then eventually when it was like self-published as an ebook, I think to promote the author's like first big publishing release, um, it was re-released with the cover that we saw and everything. That compendium also had a focus, like those authors put it together and then like donated the proceeds. So there was something in there that actually gets into my redo. Oh, you have a redo. It's not technically a redo so much as a rethinking. Okay. The interesting thing that you uncovered about the gift of joy were that the authors that we read were traditionally publishing historicals, and then they wrote a contemporary in the case of Christmas Eve, or they were writing historicals, but the Irish one wasn't their usual tipple, as we say. Adriana Herrera's The Duke Makes Me Feel is a historical written by an author whose work has largely been contemporary thus far. While this doesn't function as my redo and my assessment of that story, I still had fun. I still think that my uh, Henry Cavill, real person fic vibe is not wrong. It does make me rethink what we said about compendiums and what they're meant to do as like a showcase for authors. Because if you're not showcasing the thing that like, broke you into the industry, Mm -hmm. which by and large is what happens in most compendiums that we've read from the last five years. So the Adrian Herrera thing does really stand out in the same way as like the Gift of Joy authors stand out. And the fact that they're separated by 25 years is is of interest to me because that that was something that I didn't expect um, and was surprised by. Thinking about compendiums, I think about how romance in particular, you know, having a following on social media and being able to promote your book is such a an issue, right? Like how you're going to sell your books if you get a major publishing contract, being able to demonstrate that when you self-publish, you're able to sell. Compendiums seem like yet another marketing tool, but what's different about them is that they actually require like a specific kind of creative work. And like, if you can't get inspired, you won't be able to accomplish it. And I think that might be part of the reason what we see in compendiums is different from the bread and butter output of authors. That's an interesting thought. Adrian Herrera is interested in dipping a toe in historicals. Well, a good excuse and a good reason to try it is a short. Mm-hmm. I think we also talk about how Lisa Claypus is her most unhinged in her short stories. Absolutely. It's like, there are no walls. And so... That's actually like a little preview for one of my what I would like to see more of in 2023. (laughs) Um, But I want to know first, what is your softest no? My softest no's, because I have two, Verity, both because it's like the technical aspect of whether or not it was a romance kind of continues to throw me off. Like the romance itself seemed um, to be subsumed by the thriller aspect of it. But I understand that it's very popular and that people feel, at least on the internet, like the romance is like a big thing. I don't know. So like it was such a page turner and I definitely enjoyed the experience. This is also how I feel about the dead romantics where it's like, People are going to say that it's a romance. I definitely disagree with that. But I can see why people liked the romance of it. It's just that the trappings of the thing felt like where all of the the scaffolding really was and the relationships with the town and her family and all that other stuff, like the non-romance part of it. What was your sexiest part in 2022? Yeah, I'm glad to go to sexiest because I don't have any redos. I have an overall redo where I feel like I gave out too many woes. You did give out a lot of woes this year. Yeah, it was very easy for me to think of soft woes. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so I think if I could redo, like I can't pick one that I would redo. Yeah, that's for sure. Like, that would be like an overarching redo, but I can't think of a single specific example. I think it's okay to be generous. It's 
it's okay to be generous in 2022. 2023, yeah. hard ass all the way. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> time to get a clap back. <laughs> time to get angry again. For many will say the job of a critic is easy, and they're right. But I think it's also important to, you know, I've been thinking a lot about what we've said in the past and like why we don't have like a middle of the road rating. And it's because there's so much good content um, that doesn't get acknowledged. And so if you're mediocre and you're popular, e.g. dead romantics, I suppose, which isn't really mediocre, but isn't really a romance, then like that should be noted somewhere (laughs) the zeitgeist for sure and maybe like you just shouldn't be lionized for writing weird kylo fic right right unless it's really good kylo weird kylo fic maybe obviously it has to be outstanding and then it's different yeah okay anyway sexiest sexiest uh two two pieces i'm gonna go with my uh more obscure one first and it is the Psy collection scene from Love, Laugh, Lich. Oh, okay. Two books made me LOL this year. Well, three. The Windflower had like a couple times. But Love, Laugh, Lich and Gift of Joy. Uh, <laughs> I thought Love, Laugh, Lich was so charming, so funny, And I also felt like the sex scene was really operating on those same levels as Anna Geary's Strange Love, where it Mm. makes the physical experience of pleasure and sexual pleasure, and it removes it from specific body parts, you know? What Anna Geary does is, like, make it broader, right, more expansive, um, whereas I feel like the sex scene in Love, Laugh, Lich kind of narrows the aperture um, and has this demon creature basically designed to be good at sex with a human vulva. Mm-hmm. So I th- thought that was fun. And I also thought it was very sexy. It did everything I wanted a monster romance to do. It was very sexy. I... My my second scene is the post-wild hunt scene from A Court of Thorn and Roses. Ugh, I'm so glad that you mentioned that. That was so sexy. That is when Farah is getting a midnight snack after the wild hunt and is confronted by Tamlin, who was able to smell her in the woods earlier. And it drove him mad. And he just had to bite her. He just had to sniffle her. My sexiest part was the sex beneath the Milky Way uh, in The Flesh and the Devil after they just uh, fought off a pack of brigands. Oh. And it's the only sex scene where she's on top of him and like they've finally come to their like, we're going to be okay, we're going to get to England. But before everything gets mean and like cloistered in that little garret that they have to share when they get to London it's like it like that sex scene is so expansive and it's like like their love is as big as the stars and it's underneath a tree by like running water oh just and it goes on for pages and pages it's just it's like a warm bath it's highly cowboy take me away absolutely it is that what about your weirdest part of 2022, of the books we read in 2022. So of the books that we read in 2022, my weirdest part is the lack of dragon sex and dragon bound because <laughs> so many people said that there was. And so like f- for so many people to be wrong and for this rumor to continue was shocking to me. I just like expected that like the internet would be better about correcting something like this. And I was sort of like... Why isn't it? Uh, so that's that was weird to me. And then, like, the whole fifth act of London in the Windflower. Oh, yeah. Because, like, that book is so tight and so good. I mean, it's not tight, right? It's just, like, overflowing. It's an effluviance of <laughs> characters and places. And then, like, everything in London just gets, like, fucking weird and just smaller and less expansive yeah it almost becomes weird because it becomes more rigidly romance yes yes 
Yes, that is what is weird about it. And like, less fun. Yeah, yeah. Less fun for sure. Ugh. Those are great points. My weirdest part uh, was the toilet in Mist and Fury, a court of Mist and Fury. <laughs> that was such a good hinge point, though, for Mist and Fury. And I'm so glad that you've like brought it up again because it really, it is really the pivot point of like, what the fuck is this? What is this world building? <laughs> like, where am I? Why am I? <laughs> Uh, so good it's like the nature of the series completely changes absolutely i do i do ponder if it was meant to be it almost feels like upon reflection like a court of thorn and roses was set up to like maybe have a sequel yeah like she really keeps her options open absolutely she does and but she ends up going in a direction completely separate from those open (laughs) things and it's like we're going to Santa Fe in 1996. It's like, oh, you thought that we were going to do some Game of Thrones weird shit? No. That's on you, baby. That's not on me. That's only this one weird thing that I'm tired of writing about. <laughs> <laughs> let's go to Santa Fe. Yeah, let's do that. Yeah, so the toilet in A Court of Mist and Fury remains my weirdest part of 2022. That's That's super fair. Should we go to, like surprising and hero and heroine and setting oh sure we can absolutely do that my biggest surprise of 2022 do you know what it was a nun for the viking warrior what was surprising to you about that i found it to be it has such like a bombastic title but i found it to be such a quiet and sensual story Kind of in the same vein of like Heartbeat Braves or The Craft of Love that we also read this year. It was very, um, it was a very cozy, comforting romance. It had, you know, just a little bit of, a little bit of space. Um, so it's definitely a sexy book. But I really chose it based on the title, and I thought it was going to be something way more out there, and instead it was just kind of like a nice romance that I enjoyed. I was surprised that she wasn't a nun longer. Yeah. (laughs) I know. But, you know, mass appeal or whatever. It was fine. I I did. I also enjoyed that book. My most surprising title of 2022 was uh, Asquidentally in Love. Okay. I was surprised by how much I liked it. I really loved Locke slash Azatoth the Lesser. Um, I loved the world building. I loved the consent between our two characters. Like there, there was so much fun and like genuine joy in such a weirdly dark novel that has like ritual sacrifice of humans and just like fucking bonker shit um and so for the moments of like you know him making like an ego and watching the british bake off like this this book really um it handled the seesaw of stakes in a way that i i never stopped enjoying there's like a private dick element and then like a art heist element it had a lot of plates spinning it did it had a lot of plates spinning some of them did drop obviously um, but you know, like it, it really, it swung for the fences and I was charmed and I was surprised by quite how charmed I was. Who was your favorite female main character slash heroine? Mary from the Windflower. Why Mary? Because she was just such a beautiful mess all the time. And where I think I would have found her super annoying if she hadn't been written in the 80s, like if if Mary were written now, it would it would be too much like not like other girls and um, she don't know she beautiful, which are definitely present. But what's great about a heroine in the 80s who is those things is that she's also just like a mess, right? Like she almost dies. Like she loses like 20 pounds. Like people are teaching her dirty jokes and she doesn't get them, but she's game for it. She's like, she ends up on a desert island. She ends up on desert island. She fights off an alligator who eats the person who like helped her escape. She's got, she carries around a squid in a bucket. She's like trying to like protect herself and fight off the man who's falling in love with her. And she's like, 
can't even get the the crossbow off the wall. And like, she's so incapable, but she keeps trying. Like, you know, nothing's going to keep this good girl down. And um, I loved that for her. Notable goofy goober, Mary <laughs> like, from the Windflower. Yeah. Yeah. She was just a goober. Um, and people like responded to that. And I liked that a lot. Yeah, she uh, she's just a baby sister trying to like do right by her older brother who she desperately loves and wants to be approved by. And then she gets caught up with a bunch of pirates and, you know, just like carries a squid in a bucket because she likes it and doesn't want it to be alone. You know, like what's not to love, frankly? Yeah. Who is your favorite female main character? Uh, mine was Juana from Flesh and the Devil. I love a brat. And <laughs> she really, I love her arc. Um, she really grows up. Unfortunately, it's because of some hardships that she really brings upon herself. Um, but I love that she, as the world starts crumbling around her, she's able to reimagine herself over and over again. And I also love that she is... Uh, you know, bitchy. I love a bratty heroine. My second favorite would be Remembrance. I think Remembrance should be um, a friggin' uh, template for everyone who wants to do empowered historical heroines. She has clear, you know, she has a clear cause and specific opinions that align with the setting of her story perfectly and her role in the society of the setting which is great um but yeah Wana was uh my favorite <laughs> she was great she really she really did learn which was you know a joy in it itself and you know likewise with Mary when she's naive about stuff mm -hmm. and people are what I I would say I like a little bit more about Juana's story, right? Like her context compared to Mary is that everyone's helping Mary in the way that she needs to be helped. Mm -hmm. Juana kind of comes up against the fact that servants are trying to be subtle with the ways that they're advising her. Um, and the male main character is also trying to be subtle in the ways that he's helping her. And it doesn't work out. Yeah. And so she, it's a real, <laughs> if it weren't so, if, if things don't go so atrociously and baroquely off the rails, I would be like, it's a comedy of manners. But instead it's, <laughs> yeah, everything is so intense uh, that a comedy of manners feels like the wrong way to put it. Yeah, I don't think you can call it a comedy of manners if like part of the plot hinges on a Habsburg chin. Yeah, yeah. And like hunting human women. Yep. I think the other thing is like Juana and Mary are similar. It's just Mary exists in a much bubblier world than Juana. And but they are two nonetheless like exciting, captivating, romantic existences. I love that we chose Mary and Juana. <laughs> I do, too. I think that's right for us. Um, who was your favorite uh, male main character or hero? Um, St. Maitland from Prince of Midnight. Fuck off. That is also my favorite. Ah! <laughs> Nobody does it the better than Laura Kinsale. So Nobody true. writes a hero better than Laura Kinsale. Uh, washed up. <laughs> Horny as hell. Highwayman. Stubborn horse trainer. <laughs> like, I just loved it. I loved him. He was utterly just... The fact that you can have him, a, a male main character, be that much of a sad sack in the first sex scene, and you still like him. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Amazing. Captivating. Utterly. Stella gets her groove back. <laughs> But also, like, he does it in such a bad way that it, like, fucks everything, like, in, in, the, in the getting of the groove back, which also, like, drives the plot. He, like, just fucks shit up constantly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And his crazy vertigo that he's trying to get over and his trained wolf that he loves so much. Everything about him. And he exists in such, like, perfect disharmony with his counterpart, 
Yes. Because his grief, I think we talked about this in the episode, his grief is so internal. It's him having to come to terms with who he was and will no longer, he's grieving himself. Whereas our heroine is grieving her family and her life, right? Yeah. They are kind of incapable of meeting each other there until the very end, which I think is a beautiful arc. Laura Kinsale. Nobody does it better. He's he's not trying to get revenge. He's just trying to get his groove back. and <laughs> But he thinks he's getting revenge. Little does he know. But what he really needs is self-acceptance. Yeah, that's what they both needed. I don't know. I'm glad she got revenge. I'm glad she burnt that cult town to the ground. Yeah. And, like, there was a really good public scene of getting the town to reckon with what it had allowed. Like, there was so much in that book that was so good about, like, encroaching fanaticism and how you meet that. And, like, that book felt very much of this moment rather than the moment it was written in, which I think is one of those key pieces of a book that can speak across its time and say something specific to you and what you're going through. And, like, Laura can sail. If you have not read that author... Do yourself a favor and pick up her back catalog. I would say Prince of Midnight might not be the starting point because it is so dark. Um, but if you like <laughs> dark books, you'll probably love Prince of Midnight. Yeah. Um, sh- <laughs> the yeah, the encroaching fanaticism, also the like issue of celebrity culture when we get an appearance from actual Marquis du Sade. Crazy and well done. <laughs> so good. Speaking of celebrity culture problems, have you heard about Henry Cavill's latest? No, what's happened? So he's not returning to The Witcher. Right, because he was going to do Superman, and now DC's all like, maybe not. Yeah, it has become abundantly clear that the reason wasn't Superman. And when reached for comment, um, the only person who said anything has suggested it was because of inappropriate uh, sexual relations. Yeah, that makes sense. As we have been alluding to on this show for several years. Yes. he. Uh, there is a blind item that they try to bring 18-year-olds to set whenever he's working with underage girls so that he doesn't pursue the underage girls. Such a pretty man. Such a bad person. <laughs> What was your favorite setting? <laughs> <laughs> I have two. Uh, Jane Eyre's England in particular. Uh, just not because I thought like the north of England in winter when she meets Sinjin is nice or whatever. It's just that it's so rapturously described. Like Thornfield is lush and the moors are lush and like the way in which nature itself comes alive at the end. Like it just really does feel like a travel log for a very weird experience of England, like um, a hungry one. <laughs> um, but I, I want to go to Santa Fe. I want to I want to hang out in the court of Mist and Fury. <laughs> Thought that was the best setting. So it's not where I want to be. But my favorite setting was, once again, Prince of Midnight. Mm, that part of France? That, I think the settings overall were great. Mm, I they were. Loved, uh, I loved being in rural France next to the onion patch. Mm-hmm. I loved being on the boat. I liked the journey across England. I loved the time period, the Georgian time period. The creepy cult town is so creepy and claustrophobic and believable. Yeah, I think it had the best setting. Shout out to the Georgian era. Yeah, there should be more books written in the Georgian era. Outside of romance, what is your favorite book that you read this year? I brought a human into being this year, so... I didn't get a chance to read a lot of non-romance books, but one that I did get a chance to read was called How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith, um, about how racism and supremacy are passed down in the stories that we tell. And what's great about Clint Smith is that he's a poet by training, and he visits these sites. So like one of the ones that's 
hardest to read about. Like there, there, there are eight places that he goes in the American South. And one of the hardest places to read about was the famous Angola prison in Louisiana. That was a former plantation and now incarcerates human beings, mostly uh, black and brown men. And they do plantation work on the old plantation. And so like that reckoning is tough. Um, but he also goes to a Civil War reenactment in Virginia and just talks to people about what they think about in the year 2019, putting on the uniform of the Confederacy. And like he deconstructs this idea of it's history, not hatred. And like he does it in just this incredible um, and really empathetic way. And I think that's his training as a poet. So it's just beautiful to read, even as it's really difficult to read. So does he break down the history versus hatred to the Civil War reenactors or in the text? He, so he's a black man from the North. And so in that particular scene, he is as gentle about it as he can to the people that he's interacting with in the interview. But like he's even as he's getting it, like he's describing how they're getting like how they're reacting to him as a black man and like how they are white men dressed in the trappings of the Confederacy. And so like it's clear what he's trying to push and it's clear what the person that he's interviewing is is also trying to get around. And But he breaks down like how this person could come to believe something like it's history, not hatred, and feel that so fervently that even when confronted with very gentle facts um, about like the constitutions of the Confederacy that instilled in their first um, like articles that the institution of slavery was the reason they were doing this, that someone like that, that that he was interviewing could not know that and still with all authenticity and frankness say it is just history, not hatred. And it's like, well, the history itself is hatred. Um, so it was, it was fascinating. It was fascinating because it's also kind of an indictment of um, – state boards of education yeah i'm yeah i imagine so did you find find out about that from npr no i i uh i uh, read a excerpt of it in the atlantic and <laughs> uh knew that i wanted to read it uh before i um was consumed with raising a human so that was on my list for um right before she was born what about you uh, my favorite book that I read that wasn't a romance in 2022 is fiction. It's called Valentine by Elizabeth Wetmore. Um, it's set in West Texas in the 70s. Um, and it's clear that the author is writing about a place that she's from because she really hits on so many true details of the actual environment, the physical space. Um, and in a very short text, tells a lot of different stories about a lot of different women with a great deal of empathy and understanding. I'm a little resentful because so I found it on TikTok. Go figure. <laughs> but I absolutely loved it. And I cried throughout. I was like shaking at certain points the, with the tension. But I'm a little so I finally like looked it up online and it says, with the haunting emotional power of American dirt and the atmospheric suspense of where the crawdads sing. Oh. American dirt and where the crawdads sing wish. <laughs> Absolutely wish they could come close to this. Like, Valentine is, like, I think Elizabeth Wetmore, she's, this is maybe her first full novel. And she's mostly a short story writer. I think she's, you know, kind of a writer's writer. And... The craft of it all is so, yeah, she's only done short stories in the past. The craft of it is incredible. And it really goes to show, like, it has, like, no hype behind it, right? Like, this is a book that I think has the kind of emotional resonance and the kind of story that will make women of a certain age think more deeply about their lives. It also makes me think more deeply about how we survive as women, fascinating well i'm gonna put that on my tbr right now i'll say, i'll just send you my copy oh please do that would be great i gotta start clearing some of these out what was your favorite non-book romance 
So <laughs> mine's kind of plebeian and also top of mind for me right now. Oh. Uh, uh, but I just finished watching Harry and Meghan. <laughs> <laughs> and I came away feeling like I did about them before, um, which is to say that they have been harmed by a harmful institution and that William and Kate <laughs> suck. Um, and to get that confirmed was nice. Um, but what really left me is like, they're just two beautiful dummies just like trying to be in the world. <laughs> sex idiots. Yeah. They- well, he's like a money idiot and she's like a sex idiot. And they're just, they are, they're just in over their head. Yeah, exactly. And it's like, the, and like, that's just. That in and of itself is just charming to me. I will say Megan is not, she's probably one of the smarter people that I've ever labeled a sex idiot, but. Absolutely. Like, she's not a dumb person, but like, whatever it is about them together, just like, they're so pretty (laughs) and they're so earnest and they're just like, they're just kind of dumb. People just, they like. They have the kind of, they have everything going for them that, at least in these United States, people just want to be nice to you, you know? Yeah, Tyler Perry doesn't know you and offers you his home and just like, (laughs) yeah, (laughs) yeah, like, in so many ways, it kind of felt like Mary from the Windflower, Um, just like people went out of their way to like, try to make these beautiful, very nice seeming humans okay what about you god guys like likewise plebeian but in like on the other end of the hip spectrum it's bones and all for me oh wow okay now the director of bones and all also directed call me by your name do i think he should have stepped away from the cannibal love story starring Timothy Chalamet after Army Hammer's business became public. Absolutely. I think someone else should have helmed this film. That's a little, that's, your Venn diagram is starting to look a little bit too much like a circle, okay? Plausible deniabilities drifting on the breeze. Timothy Chalamet, I think, is completely charming. I think, you know, you pointing out that Megan was like Mary... I have to look up the character's name. <laughs> Marin, portrayed by uh, Taylor Russell. Marin is likewise kind of like Juana in the deep angst of it all, you know, um, but not realizing how bad her situation is um, and people being obfuscating. Uh, I just loved their love story. It's very sweet. Mm. If I had one critique for the romance of it, I wish they had kept their mouths slightly more closed when they were making out. It's a little, it's a little cave-like. Um, ah, yes. They're gaping maws. <laughs> um, but I, I love the story. I loved that it was, f- it fully leaned on its role as a romance. And I loved that. I I found out after the fact that it's based on a young adult novel. And I've heard, like, not a very good one. (laughs) Oh, okay. Um, And so with that in mind, I think it also speaks to the power of adaptation um, and collage. And a lot of times we actually can make art better by consuming and reimagining and all of that good stuff. Absolutely. Loved bones and all. And it also made the part of the world that I'm from look pretty. Which is likewise Valentine. So I guess there's an overarching theme where I just want people to understand the beauty of the American Plains. <laughs> that's that's good. That's good. All right. So we've talked. We've looked back thoroughly on 2022. Mm-hmm. What do we want to leave behind in 2022 in romance? Reductive, self-congratulatory conversations. Well, I'm glad you brought that up because I want to leave behind romance authors as romance critics in major publications. <laughs> I love how in sync we are. <laughs> I am. I think it's time. I have seen like the democratization of media has led to the democratization of critique. Like it's pretty easy to put your own critiques on texts out there. And for too long, romance specifically critiques have been, you know, a star system that doesn't go below three out of four. And 
a summary and I see lots of brilliant voices on Instagram and on TikTok and on YouTube sharing brilliant insight into the genre and they likewise don't have a publishing deal to worry about. And I would like to see voices like that getting roles at major publications in the review department. I would like that too. I would also like this really intense, I don't even know how I want to describe it. Maybe I'll describe it and you'll have a term for it, wherein authors say things like, this is my mortgage, as if it isn't every writer's mortgage, that like a bad review or an honest review does affect book sales but it's also because like <laughs> right i have a mortgage and limited resources and like i spent it on this and i don't want other people who are toiling to spend their money on something that isn't good that's the deal and it's also like that's the that's the deal like if i'm if i'm bad at my job fuck i hear about it yeah and i hear about it like directly also i think as a consumer of reviews i don't think bad reviews necessarily hurt sales i've seen bad reviews of books that let me know it was the book for me mm-hmm. and this kind of like guilting like it's weird to me being a professional writer is such a dream job and i don't want to say that like dreams when they're real can't be difficult right and you have every right to complain about them. But you're not a minor, you know? Mm-hmm. I'm not going, like, you're living your dream. Like, did you think it was going to be perfect? Like, there, th- if this is the worst thing that happens, you know, I think you're doing pretty okay. And also, if to for a bad review to have, like, a huge impact on your sales... You must be doing pretty big sales already. Yeah. And so it's like that kind of thing where it's like, it's, you know, this is how I feed myself. I'm like, this is how all professional writers feed themselves. And like, I watched a lecture just yesterday about the history of sci-fi, which was really interesting. And one of the things that these to folks were clocking was the difference between a genre becoming conscious of itself and then becoming self-conscious of itself. And so sci-fi became conscious of itself as a genre in the 1920s, but it became self-conscious, right? Where we'd have mm. now, now there's enough of it where we have to turn the mirror on ourselves and really ask what we're doing, why we're doing it. And like, what are, what are the strictures? What, what are the, what are the things they clocked it in like the 1960s with the advent of Dune. And I thought that was pretty interesting, like distinction between a, a genre that's conscious of itself and a genre that's self-conscious of itself. There's so much romance that for it to, to still remain only conscious of itself or only want to remain conscious of itself and constantly ask yeah. to be taken seriously. But then as soon as anyone wants to, they're like, no, I'm like, no. <laughs> I'm glad you brought this up because there is this feeling of like, don't come for my bag. But it's also in doing so coming for someone else's bag, you know? Yeah, And we can't really think that way because we're all a part of this, like, same ecosystem. Mm-hmm. We're all eating each other's shit and then shitting it out for someone else to eat. We're yeast. That's not the most romantic way of putting it, but it's true. Like, we've all got to have this symbiotic relationship. Like, people have to produce content for us to talk about as fans and purchase. And when you're talking about it, that helps with the promotion cycle so that you can sell more of it. That's unromantic, but that's real. And this idea of the writer being like some kind of priestly cast in romance is problematic. And that actually comes around to another thing I want to leave behind in 2022, and that is crossing picket lines. Mm-hmm. Publishing is not going to give a rat's ass about changing the pay structure for their employees unless it affects their income. The thing that affects their income is people buying books. It's not reviews on Goodreads. It's not 
posting in solidarity on Twitter. It's not even signing a letter. These Harper's Collins is big enough that it does not need, <laughs> you know, it is ubiquitous enough that the only thing that's going to make a difference, and, you know, also saying this from like a historical perspective, what made a difference in you know, strikes that were successful, that did things that got us like the five-day work week and sick leave. Mm -hmm. I mean, we saw it also with the railroad workers is when production stops and when capital generation stops. And so everyone, whenever you're going through a strike, it's called solidarity. Everyone needs to take a hit. Yeah. And I want to be specific that authors should be saying, don't buy my books from Harper Collins. They should be saying that. And they're not. And I, my heart breaks for these striking workers whose whole careers are put towards publishing the work of these authors, right? And getting an audience for the works of these authors. And then the authors being like, oh, oh no, like, but you can't not buy my books because then I won't make money. That will hurt my bottom line. Well, the workers who are striking, are their bottom line is already hurting. And their demands are reasonable. And like... Solidarity. Solidarity. People seem to be missing solidarity. Everyone wants to be pro-labor in like the most convenient, cutesy way possible. And it's not convenient. And it's not cutesy. Mm-hmm. People pay union dues so that they can afford to go without if they need to do something like this. And, you know, I think I think we need to stop. I think that we ultimately need to take a hard line stance on this. Um, and if it's possible, we all need to go without. Also, just acknowledge that HarperCollins posted billion dollar profits during the pandemic and that their workers are asking for reasonable things. And the fact that they're not even coming to the bargaining table and then being left high and dry but by the authors that their labor supports. Yeah. Like, come on. That's the thing. It's like their labor supports the authors, right? And the authors can't, for some reason, some authors are resistant to the idea of people not buying their books for a long enough amount of time, you know, Cancel your contracts, you know? I'll believe it when I see someone walking the walk. Solidarity. So that's what I would leave behind in 2022. What do you want to more of in 2023? I want more weird stuff. I think we didn't read enough weird stuff. Like, obviously, Flesh and the Devil and Windflower uh, loom large in our 2022. Um, I want more of that. I want to go on a journey of discovery of, like, weird publishing, smaller publishing houses that uh, burned bright and then were consumed by themselves in the 70s and 80s. I want to take some weird turns. And I want to find more stuff like uh, The Craft of Love, something that's historically and contextually rooted but also is rooted in our now i don't think those are going to be i don't think it's going to be hard to scratch that itch for my 2023 how about you what i would like more of in 2023 is kind of towards the romance industry as a whole Mm -hmm. i would like to see even more short form in romance Mm. scarlet peckham has been publishing short stories around the holidays um and offering them for free on her website you sign up for a newsletter and that's been great getting those free short little reads reading a gift of joy even <laughs> um as well as the other novellas that we consumed this year I love it I think it's you know romance has some big old thickens and I think the refinement of the short form that's required right the refinement that's required when you write in the short form is going to help with that like self-consciousness that you talked about earlier. And I also think it makes the genre more accessible to people who aren't just reading romance. Mm. And then another thing, I actually would like more mega authors. I would like to be aware, like Colleen Hoover, I want to see people putting up them numbers. I want to see a Nora Roberts, a Judith McNaught, 
walking her dog out of the window of her Mercedes Benz. I want that legend of the fucking Barbara Cartland romance author to return. I want to see eccentrics. I want to see, like Nora Roberts is doing it with way too much dignity. She's very dignified. I want to see romance authors. You want like a Jude Devereaux. I want a Jude Devereaux. I want to see big money and I want to see romance authors building a personal brand around that. I think the <laughs> this is purely for my own entertainment. I <laughs> love, you know, like it's very democratized, right? Like we read a bunch of self-published books that were really popular this year. Um, that's not how you get the big bucks, right? You need your uh, advance from a major publishing house. You need to have crazy sales. Think like the segmentation of romance is not doing all it can. I think Colleen Hoover being so popular has done more to bring new people over to the genre. I don't think she's like, I don't think her work is like the most representative of like the cool shit we have going on over here. So I would love it if we got like a a weirdo historical romance superstar. That would be cool. I think the segmentation, but also like, because what you're talking about, I think like mega stars of the 70s and 80s who lived in sepia tone pearls and palatial apartments. Like that was also not, as you said, it was part of building the brand. I think authors do that now, but the brand that they're building is I'm just like you. Look at me pay my mortgage or like, look at me on TikTok, wash my clothes between writing in the morning and writing in the afternoon. And it's like, yeah, it is so accessible. So as to be a snooze fest. And you know what? It's also detrimental because it makes people think that like they can be a superstar romance author in their day-to-day lives. And it's not for everyone. And I think part of the reason people are like, this is my mortgage, is because they prematurely put all their eggs in the romance basket. Hmm. Eccentric millionaires are how we dig ourselves out of this hole. As you said, not this year, but maybe last year, eccentric millionaires is how we got parquet floors. Give me a hardwood floor, but make it harder (laughs) and more intricate and more beautiful. 100%. There are not enough. I want to see my day in the life of a romance novelist with that looks like fucking she devil. <laughs> I want someone to be like, I wake up at 11 a.m. I scream at my ghostwriters and then I scream <laughs> at my ice sculpturists. Like, that's what I want. Like, I think we need, you know, I think that's what we need. We need more visible eccentrics, at least. You know, even someone who's like living in a cabin off the grid completely, not. Yeah, a Neil Gaiman type. They'll all break your heart in the end. You know what I mean? <laughs> I do know what you mean. But if you want an eccentric living in a cabin, he's a uh, he's a millionaire he's pretty, that yeah. does that. I, well, so is Nora Roberts. But she's doing it like, ugh, you know, she's doing it too quiet. Show me your. I want to see your Danielle Steele collection of shoes, your (laughs) collection of typewriters on top of your custom desk that looks like the spines of your books. That's a good energy, right? Like, even if we can't get there, like, I like that it's aspirational. If you're a romance author and you're listening to this, be weirder. Spend your advance on things that are not going to feed you for the next six months. Um, rely on the kindness of strangers for your next meal. Maybe like Tyler Perry. <laughs> it should exclusively be steak tartare and champagne. Mm-hmm. And if you're a vegan, get like something even weirder. <laughs> no, stop being vegan. <laughs> or tell people you're vegan while you're eating your steak tartare. And say that it doesn't count because the cow was happy or something. <laughs> it's Wagyu tartare. Yeah, the cow got more massages than I did last year, so... <laughs> This counts as vegan. That's what I want. That's That's what I want. I can't slam my head on my desk, my head, my hand on my desk while I'm recording, but I'm doing it spiritually. I can get behind that kind of uh, balls to the walls energy. Um, Anything else upon reflection on the year 2022? No. 
This was really good. I think I'm like, I'm with you. As far as our reading list goes, I want to be weirder. I want to be deeper cuts. And I want to get back to like the diversity of representation, authors of color, own voices. I want to get back to making that a priority along with like different kinds of ideas of love and sexuality. With that, loosen your woes. But never your nusses. Bye, 2022. Boom. <laughs> Woli guacamole, everyone. Thanks for listening to another episode of Womance. Womance is hosted, produced, and edited by my friend Morgan. And by my friend Isabel. Our logo artwork is by another friend, Mary Reichman. You can find her on Instagram at m.reichman, spelled R-E-I-S-C-H-M-A-N-N. Original music by Nick Gravelin. And our webmistress is Jane Bonzak. They're the best. You're also the best. We so appreciate your support by listening. Please consider taking this to the next level by following, rating, and reviewing. We read every single review. Or even check us out on Patreon. If you'd like more woe in your life, you can connect with us on Instagram at womance and on Twitter where we are at mans underscore woe. Or you can find more episodes and content at womancepodcast.com. If you have an idea or just want to reach out, please email womancemail at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Womance is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts to add to your romance collection at frolic.media backslash podcasts. Until next time. <laughs>